Hello to all our listeners. Welcome back to the Digital Adoption Podcast. My name is Kriti Arya and I will be hosting this podcast for you today. A quick background about myself. I lead business development initiatives within EMEA region for Watfix. Have been a part of Watfix for 2 years now and in my time here I've been fortunate enough to speak with talent and HR heads, learning and development leaders, helping them with strategies regarding learning technologies, employee adoption of these technologies, learning content creation, etc., etc. And so I'm super excited to introduce a very special guest today who has not only been a part of all of these processes and grown through the L&D ranks but has also written about it. She is the author of a book called The L&D Handbook that talks about practical tips and tricks to develop effective and engaging workplace learning while improving performance and productivity for the employees. And that's exactly the topic of discussion today, the secret to success of The L&D Handbook by Michelle Parry Slater. Now without much further ado I would like to welcome Michelle Parry Slater here on this segment. Hi Michelle how are you today? Hi Kitty thank you so much for having me. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> I'm beaming pride here. Thank you so much. We are very excited to have you here today on this segment Michelle. It would be really awesome if you could introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about your journey that you have had in the L&D and how did you transition to you know writing a book about it? Okay, well I started my career after my lovely time at Keio University. I went to teach English mm-hmm. in Japan and I'm married to a teacher. Um so I've always kind of had that around me. Um but after we we left Japan and came back to the UK, um I started working in global mobility, so relocation, moving people around the world on behalf of their corporate companies. And because I had a teaching background, um when a new person came into any role, um in the company i always you know sit with michelle she'll teach you what to do she'll show you the ropes and eventually i found that i was more interested in showing people the ropes in in teaching them how to do their jobs than i was in doing the job myself so i i had some formal training to become a trainer because this was a number of decades ago and that's what we did back then and so um from that formal training i ended up being a global head of learning and development um which i you know over a period of years mm-hmm. going from trainer in a mea region to then a global role um in, you know all in mobility companies and i found that i was traveling a lot so in 2012 i think i was in 13 different countries mm-hmm. in a period of about 16 different weeks and it just didn't really re- you know when i was in russia who was helping the people mm-hmm. in spain when i was in spain who was helping the people in amsterdam and things like that occurred to me so i started looking at digital technology and uh, digital learning technology is well supported in the market and uh, i wanted i uh, to go to learning technology show and i said i want me on a good day every day that was what my team deserved that was what my colleagues deserved and mm-hmm. um, i implemented a learning platform which then set me off on a journey which i never imagined and that journey was speaking at conferences um talking about our our implementation talking about our work mm-hmm. and i found i really enjoyed that so off i went to set up my own company in order to help people to make that transition to move from being a trainer you helping them to understand how do you um do things differently in learning and development and that's really what led me to write the book because i wrote it for me i wrote it for people mm-hmm. who are like me in post 
Um, usually you're the one learning and development professional in your company. You might sit with HR, but they do different things. Um, and, I, and I really wanted that kind of guide on the side to be um, able to sort of dip in and out of the book so that mm-hmm. you had somebody to speak to if that makes sense and that's really that's my journey that's that's what I do now so I focus on uh, strategic change in learning and development through my business Kairos Modern Learning. That's that's awesome I mean that's quite a transition Michelle so since you've traveled so much um, I just wanted to understand um, did you feel that the approach towards learning and digital learning was different in different regions where you traveled? I mean, did that help you with your book? Um, it did. And it was very different. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was surprisingly different in different countries. So you might people might have an impression that one country over another is more digitally enabled. Mm-hmm. But actually, I um, I always go into things with my eyes wide open and I was surprised how digitally savvy some of our offices were and others were not and it wasn't the places you would expect so you know there's this kind of impression that um, you know one country is better than the other in terms of their adoption or in terms of their broadband capability and uh, connectivity and it's it, it wasn't in my experience where you might expect so what I found was it was to do with people it's always to do with people isn't it critique it's always you know so the people who were more open to change the people who were more open to doing things more effectively to thinking in a more enlightened way um, it didn't matter what their technical capabilities were and um, they would they would work through the shift they would work through the change um, and so mm-hmm. it's definitely helped me with the book because I wanted to make sure that in the book, the opportunity for everybody to to find something useful, um, no matter where they were. So, you know, one of the suggestions in the book is write a checklist. Now, it might seem ridiculous in L&D. Why would we have a job aid, which is a checklist? Well, for some people, that's what they need. They need a piece of paper and they can tick their tasks or they can tick the activities or they can progress through a process now for other people that checklist list needs to be digitized it needs to come up as a reminder or through a calendar um, I guess what I'm saying is meet people where they are it's always about the people not about the technology absolutely absolutely and I think um, it's more about uh, personalizing based on who it is I mean different people learn in different manners so um, did you ever think that um, Is it like a one shoe fit all approach or do you think that learning techniques should be changed for different people, different groups, different regions? It absolutely is never about a one shoe for everybody. In the very beginning of my book, I talk about how learning and development is actually wearing very comfortable shoes. Um, And Mm -hmm. if you got your comfortable shoes on to, to move to a new set of shoes, you know, they're new, they're, they're not worn in yet. It can feel different and uncomfortable, but we need to perhaps go through that uncomfortableness ourselves as a profession because our learners don't necessarily like that word, but the people who are learning something or need to learn something for their jobs, those individuals deserve our best opportunity. They deserve the best way that suits them to learn. And so if we as professionals have come like I have come from a training background and we are very comfortable in a face-to-face training setting and then suddenly we're having to deal with digital technologies that's on us we shouldn't we shouldn't continue to 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 deal with new problems with old technology and what I mean by that is you know we live in a very different world than we did even five years ago let alone 15 years ago so 
Um, we need to look at solving the new issues that we have with new ways of working. And that's what our learners will be expecting. And therefore we need to change as a profession. We need to um, ensure that we can provide learning in a way that suits the individuals concerned. And it can be done. You know, it can be done. It's not personalization of learning is not that difficult anymore. Absolutely. I mean, I agree 100%. One shoe fits all cannot be, I think, applicable to the current approach of learning because things are evolving. We continuously need to ask ourselves different questions. Where are we going? There are different learning technologies coming into the market and we always need to be updated, I guess. I agree, because often we think it's a two-sided coin. We think that learning is, you know, face-to-face -face or online, or we think it's e-learning or resources, or in, and it isn't one thing or another, because people are involved and people are complex. So it's almost like a multifaceted dice. And I often talk about how, as professionals, we need to be advocates for the right, right solution, um, for the right problem, for the right people, at the right time, um, for the right reasons. And we need to deliver that in the right way. And that's a very multi-sided dice. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, what did you, uh, what help did you take when you were researching about this? I mean, this is so diverse. It's different for different people, different for different regions. Um, it's the L&D handbook. So what helped you with your research? That's a really good question. So I have been a learning professional for a number of decades and I thought, mm -hmm. OK, I want to write a book because I'd in, uh, in 2015, I tweeted every day a small tip, a small idea, because I wanted to share my thoughts and spark conversation, spark thoughts in other L&D professionals. And mm -hmm. at the end of that year, um, I was interviewed on Learning Now TV and I was asked, you know, what next? And I thought, well, actually, my audience for these tips aren't necessarily always on Twitter. So going back to, you know, personalization, I thought we'll put this together in a book. And so I was very fortunate that Kogan Page gave me a book contract and I stared at the blank page of my unwritten book for months and months. I didn't know what to do. I, I had all this information that I wanted to share, had all this energy and enthusiasm, and I did not know how to translate mm. my, my vocal way of talking about this stuff into the written word. And it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I, I, I work in L&D. How, how can I not do this? How can I not <laughs> write a book? And I was really disappointed with myself. And then I realized suddenly the, the, the penny dropped, you know, that I've never written a book before. This is a new set of skills. I've never done this ever. So actually I was being really hard on myself in the same way as if I'd never driven a car and I get in the car for the first time, I'm not gonna just drive off. And I realized actually I need to learn how to write a book. So I went through my own learning process and to your point about how did you do that? Well, I asked professionals, I asked experts. I spoke to a lot of colleagues I knew who'd written books and they talked me through the things they found hard and the things that they did, which were helpful. And I spoke to my publishers and, um, you know, and in the end, I actually got a copywriter to listen to me speak about a topic and then to write it down for me from that spoken recording because then I could see my voice on the page and as soon as I could see my voice on the page then I found my writing style and I wrote the book but I needed to go through a process of learning how to be an author and it wasn't easy and I was embarrassed because you know I'm a professional I should know how to write a book I should know how to talk about my stuff 
but I'd never done that skill before. And it certainly was a new skill. And it just, I've written about this in the book because it reminds people that when we do something different, when we do something new, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to not know and to recognize that in yourself and to get some help. So I got help. Absolutely. I mean, that sounds scary, but also exciting, right? It was exactly that, exactly scary and exciting. <laughs> that That's really motivating, actually. Um, so do you believe that the approach to learning should not only be professionally, but should also reflect in one's real life? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how L&D professionals benefit from this learning approach that you might have mentioned in your book. And how can they incorporate this in their real life? Yeah, I think it absolutely needs to be a reflective of real life in terms of um, accessibility for a start. You know, people in their professional lives, in their in their, in their personal lives, they're networked, um, they're relevant, they're social, they they know who to ask. You know, or if they don't know who to ask, they know how to search for it online. Um, you know, they'll seek out information. We don't go on a course. Um, in order to buy a new car or uh, choose who our life partner will be. You know, we don't go on courses for these. We we ask our network, we ask our friends, our family, and we look at magazines and we look online and YouTube videos and whatever. So we've got these skills and learning and development professionals really do need to harness the skills of our learners um, and give them what they need when it comes to content or learning pathways. It's, it's lazy not to do that, actually, to force people to go on a course, to force people to wait six weeks to learn something that they need for their jobs right now is, is really not meeting their expectations. We live in a very here and now world. Um, if I want to cook Mexican food tonight and I don't have a recipe for that, I have got the internet to Google that and, and to find out, you know, what, what recipe to use. And so I think L&D do really need to harness that whole, um, I, I call it the whole 100. You know, Charles Jennings talks about 70, 20, 10. I, I like to add it all together and call it the whole 100. We need to use all of the things that are at our disposal and, you know, create communities of practice, networks for people to talk to each other about their work and learning, create social interaction. You know, if people are loving face-to-face -face learning activities, what are they loving? Are they actually loving sitting in a room, getting the knowledge dump, or are they loving chatting to their colleagues? In which case, as L&D professionals, it's totally fine to put on a network event, to put on, you know, a uh, share some food, pizzas, cheese and wine, whatever it might be for you, for your particular audience. You know, it's got to be relevant. But more importantly, I think learning has to be available at the point of need. And if, if in L&D we are not providing learning at point of need, they're not going to wait for us. They're, they're off. You know, they're asking their own network. They're Googling it. They're speaking to people um, that they know who do that job. How do they do that job? Um, and we become irrelevant. That's that's a very interesting spin to it. I think learning should be provided at the point of need, and that's so important. And it never should be like a one-time thing. It has to be continuous. So exactly. honestly, totally agree on that. But you often talk about how to do better in a workplace learning. I mean, of course, we can you use all these approaches in real life as well. But when it comes to workplace learning, can you elaborate how people could maybe continue evolving with different changes that have come into the learning processes. I mean, earlier yeah. people were more into classroom learning. Now people have maybe evolved into on-the-go learning processes. So what are your thoughts on that? 
So for me, it starts with strategy. We, we come in, I think, as L&D professionals too late. We come in looking for and, and talking about solutions, but actually I, I encourage people to strip it back. So the first eight chapters of my book, before we even get to any sort of methodology for, for delivering learning, for, for learning solutions, it, um, those chapters are all about how do we know what we're doing in the first place? How do we know what we're doing is the right thing to do? Um, so for me, we need to get really familiar with our organizational strategy. We need to be very keen on understanding who our stakeholders are across the entire range. Um, mm -hmm. So not just those budget, but those that will be on the receiving end of any uh, learning intervention. We need to take a more consultative approach. So we need to be asking better questions. Um, you know, why when the sales manager says Bob needs to go on a sales course? Well, you know, Bob might have been on six sales courses. Why are we sending him on another sales course? We need to start getting sort of the critical evaluation, the critical appraisal around why are we doing this work? Um, and this all stems from evidence, from data, from better evaluation of the interventions we've done in the past to teach us mm -hmm. what interventions would work in the future. And only at that point, we can then start to think about which solution would be the best, be that uh, purely social learning or coaching or um, a, a course or some resources, uh, digital resources. Um, you know, it, it's a blend and we can only get to that, that focus of, of, of you've mentioned, continuous learning, if we mm -hmm. really understand how to move from the strategic to the tactical. And I think we so often jump in with the solution. Okay, Bob needs a course. Well, great. You know, I've got this course or that got this provider or that provider we're asking the wrong questions we shouldn't be saying you know when and how much we should be saying why absolutely absolutely and the why is the most important i guess um though what in your opinion would you would you say are some real life examples of how organizations can maybe increase engagement and performance when it comes to you know better learning practices using practical learning solutions yeah, i love um, sharing practical stories i think it's helpful for people and to, it gives them confidence and so every chapter of the book has got a case study and it's got my thoughts about the case study, but it's also got an invitation for you to have your own thoughts about the case study. But a story I'd like to share with you today um, in terms of, of increasing engagement or, or performance as a result of using practical learning interventions was a project that I worked on last year with um, the co-op. They are a retailer in the UK, food retail. Uh, they have funeral care as well. Um, quite a broad range of, of different outlets. Um, but they run and have run for many years uh, a learning product called Leadfest. And what they've done with Leadfest is they've got guest speakers in and they've invited their leaders to come and listen to the guest speakers and have conversation around the topics and that kind of thing. But of course, the world is no longer the same as it was just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And they appreciate that um, their, their managers in the their stores, their managers, uh, the retail managers have worked through the pandemic. They've, they've opened their shops when they've been allowed to legally open their shops and, and they've had people in post when everyone else is talking about hybrid working and that kind of thing. And so they wanted to offer something different because they know their managers are off working in a different environment than they used to. And I love the link there between the reality of the context and the learning itself. 
So instead of just offering, you know, another talk, they came to me and they said, you know, can we do something to help our managers lead in different contexts? So what we offered and the solution we ended up with through good negotiation, through good research, good evidence base, um, was to offer them learning, which was delivered differently. So I got a lot of my associates together and we ran sessions which were on topics that they were curious about. So we, we crowdsourced from the managers what it was that they wanted to talk about. And then we put those talks together. We put those, those conversations in different settings. So we ran Street Wisdom. Um, which is something that David Pearl um, has started. And David's view is that walking around, physical exercise, being out and about, whilst thinking about work problems and work challenges, you know, the answers are everywhere. You get your answers from your environment. Um, and so that was a very powerful technique. And other techniques that we tried, we tried writing, we tried sketch noting, um, we tried uh, different types of discussion using fishbowl, um, for example. Uh, and so it was the conversations the managers wanted to have, the learning that they felt that they needed, but in an environment, in a, in a setting which was very different. And it really, really got them thinking differently. It got them to consider, for example, instead of having a one-to-one -one meeting with a member of staff in the, in the office at the back of the shop, let's go for a walk. Let's go out together. Let's let's breathe in some fresh air together and, and come up collaboratively with new fresh ideas as a result. So um, it's, a, it's a really practical example of how when you look at, you know, an old problem with new eyes or, or, or when you look to use new technology to solve different types of, of problems. That's a beautiful thought, Michelle. And uh, do we get to read more such instances and examples in your book? Yes, we do. Um, as I say, there's 14 different chapters and each has got its own little story to tell. And there are littered throughout the book other examples, because I think giving practical examples was re it felt really important to me. Lots of books, mm -hmm. wonderful books by many wonderful colleagues of mine um, are, are a little bit more academic. My book is not an academic book in the same sense. It's well researched and got a good evidence base because that's important to me as a practitioner. Um, but sharing little stories, little ideas, little tips and, um, you know, continuing those conversations in the community online through Twitter, for example. These are the sorts mm -hmm. of things that are really important to me. And another thing that I found when I wrote the book is that people are busy. I don't know about you, Kriti, but uh, you know, life disappears, doesn't it? It's like, oh, another day yeah. gone. And I have good intentions and I buy these books from lovely authors and I know they'll be brilliant and I, I can't quite find the time to read them. So when I wrote my book, it was really important to me that it didn't feel like a maze. It didn't feel difficult to access. Um, accessibility mm -hmm. is important. So the cover of my book is indeed a maze, um, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And how I've made it accessible for people is I've written each chapter with a short read and a long read. So if you're short on time or you're maybe not so interested in that topic, you have it's a, a bit like a reading a blog. So just a very short uh, to sort of whet your appetite, to engage you in the topic area. And if you're interested and want to continue, then there's the longer read, which expands on some of the ideas and themes. And I also in in each chapter, I've put lots of lists 
chats, uh, lots of resources for people to go to so that they can uh, be encouraged to continue beyond the frame of, of the, the pages of this book um, to look at other uh, research where I found my inspiration, for example, through the library list. Um, I've put an action plan in for people to encourage them. I've put some thinking questions because sometimes, you know, when you're out uh, on a walk or, or commuting into the office, just having some thinking questions to consider. Um, and so people can access the book in lots of different ways. They don't have to start at the beginning and finish at the end, you know, sort of 350 pages later. Um, and and that, it's a bit selfish, really, because that's how I'd like to access all books. So that's why I wrote <laughs> my book. Right. Absolutely. That's awesome. I, I wanted to actually ask you about the cover because I personally love the cover where the, where there's this person trapped in a maze and trying to find that ray of light. Um, though you just mentioned that uh, you understand how people are busy and this thought crossed my mind that learning and retention should go hand by hand. But most of the times people are busy and the retention doesn't happen as learning happens. So have you happen to mention this in your book as well have you maybe correlated learning with retention yeah so one of the reasons why it's a handbook is it's the sort of book that's on your desk you know and you can <laughs> pick it up and put it down pick it up and put it down and go oh yeah I remember that thing you know or I, I'm you know I'm going into a stakeholder meeting let me just open the book at stakeholder chapter and just look through some of those thinking questions to get me in the right mindset so another of one of these little sort of at the end of each chapters another of the sections is I call it the set list um, so just inspired there from my love of music and uh, playing in concerts where you, you have a set list but the set um, for each of the lists if you like um, for, for learning and development it's, it's your mindset it's your skill set it's your tool set and your data set so my suggestion here is that if you're thinking and preparing each of these different areas, um, you know, particularly, like I say, you're heading into a stakeholder meeting, have a quick look at mindset, right? So I need to be, I'm just reading from the book for you here. You need to be open to listening. You need to not be talking and um, resistant to solutioneering, which is where we jump to solutions, as I've described. You need to not be judging. You need to be open to everyone and you need to be attentive. So the book is littered with these set lists um, for each of the different topics to just start you thinking, OK, you know, what is the mindset I need to take into this meeting? And then similarly, the skill set, the tool set, the data set. Um, and so I hope that this makes it more accessible for people, that it isn't, you know, you know, you read a wonderful quote. And I don't know mm -hmm. about you, Kriti, I, I write them down on post-it notes and they're stuck all over my wall in my office <laughs> when I find that resource in a book that I like. Um, but when you're flicking through a book, it can be hard to find that exact quote again, which is why I write them down. But people are busy, you know, so I was hoping that they don't need to write stuff down out of my book. I've, I've tried to break it out a lot so that it's easily found. So hence, hence the handbook um, sort of mentality around it. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, now that you mentioned that, I remember that I do that as well. So that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> but so that brings me to my next question. I was just wondering, since you've spoken about the checklist, you've spoken about how um, you've created the handbook in such a way that people, even though they are busy, can, you know, refer to it. Um, what would you suggest to young L&D professionals that that want to make a career in the L&D arena as a must do to build the right future? What is that one key value or a must do thing that they 
that they should have to build a career in L&D profession? I think for me personally, um, it's always been networking. And, you know, some people just hate even the word networking because it just fills them with dread speaking to strangers and so on. Um, you know, how awful would that be? But, um, you know, pushing yourself to meet other people and pushing yourself to engage in community um, is really what will open your eyes to new ideas. It will open your eyes to new opportunities and it will enable you to sort of critically appraise. You know, you don't have to agree with everything that other people say. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you shouldn't agree with everything that other people say, you know, form your own opinions. But networking will help that. You know, you find your group of people that um, that, that support you. And, and I found that personally through Twitter years and years ago, but I don't think Twitter is quite the same space it used to be. And the algorithms have shifted a little bit. So you don't get exposed to so many different voices that you used to. But I, whether that's LinkedIn, whether that's TikTok, whether that's in person, whether that's at conferences, whether that's through books or book clubs. I run a book club for my book. Um, you know, spend time with fellow professionals in forums or on courses, uh, you know, how, however you manage to do that. I think that that would be a good way to set up young professionals. But I would also like to add, as somebody who's not so young anymore, help mm-hmm. older people in the profession reframe I think sometimes we are too dismissive of young people. And I do a lot of work with young people through Girl Guiding, um, Girl Scouts in other areas of the globe, Um, recently being head of learning in a volunteer capacity at Girl Guiding. And I know from spending so much time with young people that if you give them empowerment, if you give them a voice, they will really come up with some fantastic ideas. So it's not a cliche for me to say, you know, young people are the future, but sometimes they're not, they're not met where they are. They're met with criticism and judgment, and that offends me. Um, so when you hear an older person saying, you know, young people are entitled, I invite the reframe. It's not entitled, it's empowered. And, you know, when you hear older people saying young people are full of expectation, I say it's not expectation, it's motivation. And so I think if we can help this reframe and invite people who are the future of our profession into community, into a fully networked, invited open space, then I hugely, hugely recommend that for young people to push their way in, but recommend that for older people to to put the hand that was once probably offered to them and and pay it forward in that way. That's 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 a beautiful thought. And I think that's applicable universally, not in just L&D, but all profession in real life too. That's just a beautiful thought. Um, thank you so much for this. This was really insightful. And um, now I can't wait to move to the next round of our segment. We're just going to keep this a little lighter. This would be the rapid fire <laughs> round. So are you, are you ready okay. for the rapid fire round? I'm ready for it. <laughs> Bring it on. Ask me anything and I might have an answer. <laughs> okay, this is going to be very, very exciting. First question would be, Michelle, um, if money were no object, would you be working right now? Oh, <laughs> I'd love to be noble and say, of course I would. But do you know what? I think I probably wouldn't be. But no. okay, I'm going to say, yes, I would. But in a voluntary capacity, I love my voluntary job. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to say volunteering. I can't do nothing. Sun loungers, being on a beach, that would be boring for me. So I'm going to say, yes, I would. <laughs> that, that sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> next one would be, do you ever wish you were someone else? Do I ever wish I was someone else? No. Yes. No, I'm, yeah, I'm very blessed. 
I'm no. I or think maybe got you, do you ever wish you were doing something else? Uh, no, no, I don't wish that either. Actually, no, I think we've all got unique gifts and talents, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're bestowed upon us, and it's our job to to share those with the world. So, no, I'm very happy. Thank you. <laughs> all right. What's the best advice you've ever heard? Oh, easy one. Be flexible, not determined. I got that advice when I first started out in training. Be flexible, not determined. And it's it stood me stood me in good stead for a lot of things in life. That That is an interesting advice. Okay, this one would be pretty hypothetical. But um, if you could time travel, where would you go? Time travel? I, I, I think maybe Victorian England. Victorian England. I've always, always fascinated. Um, I married a history teacher. And as a kid, mm-hmm. I was always fascinated by history. And those crinoline dresses, you know, those big, huge dresses on a frame. Yeah. Um, like, I'm guessing there's more able... story to this. Well, I'm just curious about those huge, big dresses. I think I'd like to go to Victorian England and try on a beautiful crinoline dress. But my my um, lockdown figure probably wouldn't fit in it. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been through this. I mean, we're still yeah. going through that. Yeah. We are indeed, yeah. We've just accepted it as new normal. <laughs> it is. That's a new normal. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Michelle. With that, we've come to the end of our podcast. Um, but before we sign off, um, would you like to tell our listeners how they can reach out to you in case they wish to? Yes, absolutely. So anyone can find me on Twitter. Um, it's at MIPS1608. So my initials and my birthday, M-I-P-S-1608. I will expect the cards in the post. Um, so <laughs> that's my easiest way to get hold of me. Or alternatively, you can come through my website, which is kairosmodernlearning.co.uk. UK. And if you're more specifically interested in the book, then the book website is the L&D handbook.com. So you can find info on the book and the book club in that place. Thanks ever so much for having me on, Kriti. It's been so nice to hear your questions and your rapid fire questions as well. Um, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the wonderful insights. It has been absolutely lovely hosting you today. And um, thank you so much for listening to this, guys. Stay tuned for the next Digital Option podcast. Thank you so much. Have a great one. <laughs>